the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is um, producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. On the program today, we're going to talk with Scott Kirkland. He's the managing partner at Mor- and mortgage advisor at Root Mortgage. He'll be joining us to talk about the uncertain markets, mortgage rate fluctuations, and lending. We'll also talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the fact that believers have the right to congregate despite COVID-19. We'll talk about what happened in Kentucky and what the courts have had to say. And we'll also hear from Greg Jantz, his book, Soul Care, Healing Depression for Life. So all of that coming up today on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, earlier in the day, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, she announced the state's initial framework for lifting statewide closures affecting millions across the state, saying that she would uh, take a slow science-based approach to deciding how to move forward without specifying when that would happen. I'm not going to put a date on this, the governor said. She also said she wants five things to be in place before gradually lifting the unprecedented stay-at-home restrictions, a declining growth rate in active cases, sufficient personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, surge capacity in hospitals, increased testing capacity, tracing and isolating positive cases and strategies to protect vulnerable communities, including nursing homes and the homeless population. This is only a framework, she said in the press conference. We have to be cautious or it will backfire. Well, the announcement was short. It was short on details. It left um, pretty unclear how Oregon's going to define how much protective equipment it needs, how an effective uh, tracing program would be staffed and funded, as well as when testing capacity is expected to increase. She did say she didn't yet know how much PPE Oregon needed. The governor said her next steps include soliciting input from local leaders, consulting with most affected uh, industries, including restaurants and hair and nail salons. My nails look terrible, by the way. Completing metrics for reopening and creating operational uh, plans for testing, tracing and isolation. She's coordinating with other West Coast states, although none of the three states, Washington, Oregon, or California are going to wait for the other that is trying to coordinate their efforts. She said it's not going to be easy and it will take longer than we want. Uh, State epidemiologist Dean Seidlinger, he said uh, to reopen, Oregon would need the capacity to do 15,000 tests a week, 2,100 a day, not the ability to test every Oregonian. So that gave us at least some perspective on what the governor and the epidemiologists are suggesting we need in order to move forward. In other news, a few weeks ago, President Trump took to Twitter um, in all caps, wrote, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. The president was apparently referring to the dramatic steps that the U.S. and other countries around the world are taking to defend their citizens against COVID-19. The pandemic was unfamiliar territory for federal, state, and local governments. U.S. officials relied on data from epidemiologists to prevent the country from spiraling into a more severe health crisis. A famous saying in the early days of the crackdown was, better to overreact than underreact. But after weeks of adhering to strict social distancing guidelines that were praised by health experts, 
The country is experiencing some dramatic side effects. The economy has ground to a halt. Some Americans claim that their civil liberties uh, were uh, another casualty of the disease. Well, the president told a White House press briefing on Monday that he has total authority on when to reopen the U.S. and said he believes that the economy will boom once he gives it the green light. He said he has a new task force that will be focused solely on that task. He said that he has been holding discussions with senior aides on how to roll back federal social distancing recommendations that are set to expire at the end of the month. He stressed that he wants Americans to be very, very safe. Well, in other related developments, the president defends early coronavirus actions in a heated briefing as uh, Dr. Fauci regrets the poor choice of words that misled media that was... um, very anxious to be misled. Coronavirus stay-at-home orders are stirring protests nationwide. And the World Health Organization is under fire after Taiwan released the contents of a December email inquiring about the person-to-person spread of COVID-19, saying it was instead ignored by the World Health Organization and denied adequate information to fight the virus. Of course, uh, Taiwan and uh, the mainland China Uh, is not, uh, they're not in a good relationship. Taiwan is accusing WHO of downplaying the severity and spread of the coronavirus in an attempt to pander to China, even after Taiwan sounded the alarm about at least seven cases of atypical pneumonia that they were aware of in Wuhan, where the virus originated. And a former aide to former Vice President Joe Biden, who is accusing the Democrats' presumptive presidential nominee of sexually assaulting her during the early 90s, when she was a, when he was a senator, rather, tells uh, Fox News that not only will she not vote for Biden this uh, November, but she will never vote in the general election again. Tara Reid, who alleged the assault took place in the basement of a Capitol Hill office building in the spring of 93, said in a statement, I will not ever vote in a national election again, despite the fact that I come from a family of Democrats. I worked for Leon Panetta in California, State Senator Jack O'Neill and Joe Biden. I worked hard for the Democratic Party as a young woman. It is obvious by the tremendous smears about me leveled by Biden campaign and supporters after I came forward about Biden and the complete lack of support from any Democrat that they care more about protecting him than addressing the serious allegations by me and the other seven women who complained about his misconduct. Hmm. Other 2020 presidential race developments, the New York Times editor suggests uh, the report on Biden's accuser was changed after the Biden campaign complained and former President Barack Obama has now officially endorsed Joe Biden. Finally, well, Dr. Fauci has defended his handling, the president's handling of the early days of the coronavirus. He said his prior controversial remarks were a poor choice of words. Dr. Fauci said on Monday he sought to squash any notion of a fissure between he and the president, saying at the opening of a coronavirus task force briefing that the president repeatedly and immediately backed social distancing recommend, uh, recommendations from he and other public health officials, despite the economic pain. He also appeared irritated at CBS uh, reporter Paula Reed, who asked if he was doing this voluntarily. Molly Hemingway uh, on Twitter says, so, so many of our political media aren't just bad, but head shakingly, mortifyingly bad at their jobs in this important moment. Well, the New York Times admits they altered the Biden abuse story because Biden didn't like it. They admitted cutting a key moment because the campaign thought that the phrasing was awkward and made it look like there were other instances in which he had been accused of sexual misconduct. Also of note, this absurd excuse as to why the New York Times treated Kavanaugh much more harshly. Kavanaugh was already in a public forum in a large way. Kavanaugh's status as a Supreme Court justice was in question because of a very serious allegation. And when I say in a public way, I don't mean in the public 
way of Tara Reid's. If you ask the average person in America, they didn't know about the Tara Reid case. So I thought in that case, the New York Times was going to introduce this to readers. We needed to introduce it with some reporting and perspective. That's an interesting spin from the New York Times. The GOP is seeking ways to save the economy. Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell are seeking to replenish the Paycheck Protection Program. Senator Josh Hawley, uh, taking things a step further, has come up with a rescue package that would allow employers to rehire every person who has been laid off because of the pandemic and for businesses who are having to shut down for folks who are having to go without work because of this pandemic. It would, this same program, would cover 80% of employers' wages, 80% across the country for every business that has been affected. That would allow us to maintain employment. It would allow employers, or rather employees, to retain their jobs, support their families, and then be in the position to surge strong once the economy reopens. Uh, Hugh Hewitt writes, from another story from Washington to Brussels to Frankfurt to Berlin and beyond, officials in advanced economies are rolling out the biggest fiscal and monetary policy uh, bazookas they've ever imagined. Some of the players, notably Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, have forged a, a close firefighting partnership echoing their predecessors during the 2008 financial crisis. Officials who confronted the brink of economic calamity during a European debt crisis that began a decade ago, such as German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the new European Central. The country uh, is creating an app so that citizens can snitch on each other for COVID-19 violations. Uh, The watchdogs in Riverside County who come across non-essential businesses still in operation, large gatherings or businesses not complying with health orders can now report scoff laws anonymously through the county's mobile app. County officials on Thursday said their app, Rivco Mobile, has been updated with a coronavirus feature that will provide data to county health officials about possible violations of state and local orders related to business closures, gatherings, and social distancing enacted in response to the outbreak. So now they have the capacity there to spy on and report their neighbors. Meanwhile, Planned Parenthood is getting mobile to help kill unborn babies, bragging that due to the coronavirus, they've had to kill on the road. On this day in history, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln is shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington. He would die the next day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Scott Kirkland, managing partner and mortgage advisor at Root Mortgage. We'll talk about these uncertain markets, mortgage rate fluctuations, and lending. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we're all living under this new normal and trying to navigate uh, the world as it is today and anticipate what the world might be like tomorrow or some tomorrows from now. We here at KPDQ want to support our advertisers and to give you some understanding of the challenges they face and the service they might provide for you. Well, today we have Scott Kirkland. He's managing partner and mortgage advisor at Root Mortgage on these uncertain markets, uh, mortgage rate fluctuations and lending. And I should mention that Root Mortgage, they strive to provide the highest level of service and expertise They build long-term relationships with their clients and those who are referred to them. They're local, so they're helping their neighbors achieve their dreams of home ownership. And I know some of you might wonder, is that still a possibility for me under the new normal? Scott Kirkland, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Georgine. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. First, let me give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at Root Mortgage. 
Absolutely. We do residential mortgages, purchases, and refinance. You know, Oregon and Washington are, are the places that we're licensed. We focus on, you know, residential mortgages and kind of operating on an alternative to a lot of um, other individuals and, that are out there. And, you know, we just help borrowers understand the largest debt and largest asset of their life and what they're about to partake. So highly educational in our, is our approach. Yeah, yeah. I know for many people who perhaps anticipated home ownership might wonder now if that's a possibility. So I'd like to talk about that in, in just a moment. But as a, um, a mortgage company, how has COVID-19 impacted you as a small business or as a business in our community? It definitely has slowed the pace of buying and selling because there's, you know, definitely during times like this, unique times and uncertain times of even job mm-hmm. and employment. And of course, people you know, need to be employed or have a, a source of income in order to have the ability to repay mortgages and debts that are there. And so that's something that's, you know, putting the pause with some people that are out there. Um, but there's definitely still people buying and selling houses right now, especially a lot of first-time buyers because there's just less competition. It's, you know, pretty competitive in this time of year in the springtime and the yeah. weather where there's a lot of competition and buyers. You know, we only had 1.8 months of inventory in March. And so April and May's numbers, there's a lot of people, I think, holding off on listing their houses. So I think that will come back in the third and fourth quarter. But we have seen in our products, um, elimination of certain loan products, um, some high balance and jumbo loans over 510,000, lower credit scores, higher debt to income ratios. And some of the you know more risky loans, I would say for investors, the appetite for those have been, been diminished significantly in the last few weeks. Yeah. Well, the markets are pretty uncertain. And I think people are reluctant to move forward or maybe have lost um, hope that perhaps they can own a home in the near term. What do you recommend for listeners who are sort of where we all are, sort of in that middle where you don't know, should I move forward? Is it a good time to start talking to a, a mortgage company? Should I wait? What's what's your advice? I think like the second home market and more luxury of the things like, hey, I'm buying some to the coast or central Oregon or some other place like that. I think some people are putting pushing the brakes on that stuff. But if you're having a primary residence, you know, you have to have a home over your head. Right. And so, you know, whether someone be renting and or buying or moving down, you know, selling and moving down into a condo because they're near retirement or maybe they're entering the first uh the uh, home ownership for the first time, there's opportunity out there for everyone, you know, and so that's where, you know, the right opportunity, because there are some people with what's going on and what's happening where they're being forced to sell. And so there is opportunity for people also to come in and get a house that maybe wasn't available at that price or that location that they wanted to. And so, um, you know, I always just tell people, you know, just keeping your ear to the ground, be engaged in that objectively, having professionals, us and or other people, filter with that and then just, you know, trusting like, is this in my strike zone? Is this what we want to do as a family or as a couple? Um, And then, you know, the ability to repay loans, of course, is is important, but that home ownership is for sure still in grasp and reach. And if not, I mean, especially the first time buyers, I think there's even maybe a better opportunity now than there was even a few months ago, because you don't have so much competition. You're not one of seven offers on a house. You may be only one of one or one of two. And so I think that we'll look back on this time well, challenging and unfortunate, some people um, will have got into homes that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get into. What about mortgage rates? Are they fluctuating? Are they fixed? And are they low at this time? So all the loans that we do are Fannie, Freddie, or Ginnie Mae loans. Uh-huh. And so you know, most of these loans, especially right now, are government-backed loans. 
And so historically, yes, rates are, you know, low compared to where they had been in years past. And, you know, 2012 rates were one of the lowest points and they're back to that again. And depending on people's credit score, loan to value, et cetera, you know, we just, you know, objectively price that off with all the different investors that are out there and who's ever offering that most competitive rate and we can get, get the loan done is where we go. But yeah, we're seeing a lot of people refinance actually, we're mm-hmm. historically a more purchase-oriented shop, but right now, the next 60, 90 days, we think we're just going to see a flip-flop. Instead of 80% of our business being purchased, we think it'll be 80% of our business refi because there are people who, you know, have, you know, taking cash out, paying off other debt, maybe even going to a lower term. You know, you're five, six years into your loan. Don't refinance and maybe back to a 30-year fixed. If your cash flow monthly is good, let's look at a shorter term and take years off the end of your loan so you're getting that debt paid off quicker, a 15-year, yeah. a 20-year. And so we just kind of educate all of that and just look at the whole picture for the client and then just objectively ask questions like, you know, what's your goal in this? And then give them objective feedback. And I tell them, like, even if I tell you something that you disagree with, this is your home and it's your payment. I want you to do what you feel is right. But my job is to be objective and tell you what I think you should do. And then you can tell me what you want to do. And we'll do that. Yeah. Well, and it's so important to have an objective opinion because we tend to be emotionally attached to either our vision or the homes that we're currently in. So to have an informed uh, advice is a a great value. Um, Now, as I mentioned, you all are local. We're your neighbors. So you're servicing our own community. You're located on Southeast Sunnyside, but you are licensed in both Oregon and Washington. For listeners who have questions, would like to pursue perhaps um, refinancing or uh, they're looking to purchase their first uh, home or uh, a new home, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, either our phone number um, is 503-208-8220, goes into our main office line, or rootmortgage.com. And again, root of a tree is right. So all basics of finances and financial literacy is what we try and teach. And strong roots build strong communities. And so we're always a big about people getting out into that home ownership in the right timing and the right way and not getting out over their skis, especially at a time like this. Oh, and that's, again, so important. Well, rootmortgage.com is the uh, uh, the address. You can also phone them at 503-208-8220, 503-208-8220. Well, I appreciate so much you support the radio station that, and the, the company that I work for. We want to make sure that our listeners are aware of the challenges that you face and the services that you provide And while some of us might think the timing is a little off, it sounds to me like this is a great time uh, to talk to Root Mortgage if you have questions or if you're thinking about moving forward uh, with the purchase of a new home or refinance or some of the other things that you all do. So I appreciate so much your talking with us today. Any final words for those who are uh, learning to live with the new normal? Yeah, you know, we always, you know, you know, great captains are always made in, in stormy and tough waters. And, you know, when you look through this, so there's a reason and the why in all of this. Sometimes we might not know the why, but that is often revealed to us. And so, you know, we just look at their opportunity. There's definitely disruptors to everyone's business and homes right now. Um, but, you know, just looking at, you know, how can I become better leader, better for my family out of this? And I think that's what we're about Um yeah, and so I, I just really thank you guys for that opportunity. And my NMLS number is 212-843. I have to have that out there anytime I talk. Mm-hmm. So I just appreciate you guys and what you guys are doing for the community as well and providing value. Thank you, Georgine. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, Scott Kirkland, it's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you guys. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, again, we're talking about Root Mortgage. 
And again, that telephone number, 503-208-8220, or their website, rootmortgage.com. These are folks who are advertisers of our stations, and we want to try to support them as much as possible as we're all sort of in this together. And it can be a challenge to to do business, as many of you well know. So I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to talk with our friend, Scott Kirkland. Up next, we're going to take our uh, take a look at what's going on in the uh, in the world around us as it relates to COVID nineteen and beyond. We'll also talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about what happened over the weekend in Kentucky, where a church decided we're going to meet together, only we're going to conform our meeting to the standards set by our local leaders. So they decided they were going to have church, but everyone would remain in their cars. They would be distanced in the cars at least six feet apart. No one would get out and walk around. You stay in your cars. The only people outside of the cars would be the pastor and the videographer. Well, that didn't quite um, satisfy some of the local leaders. And in fact, in Mississippi, one police officer said, hey, your rights have been suspended as a consequence of this pandemic. Well, is that the, is that true? We'll talk with Zach Smith about all of that when he joins us later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a Wednesday afternoon. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about believers' rights to congregate despite COVID-19 if that congregation is according to the stipulated social distancing guidelines. We'll tell you what happened in Kentucky over this weekend. Before we start, I want to just mention a couple of things. 1894, on this day in history, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, that's close enough, has its first public showing. 1903, Dr. Harry Plotz discovers a vaccine against typhoid. 1912, RMS Titanic hits an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. off Newfoundland. You know the rest of that story. 1935, a severe sandstorm ravages the U.S. Midwest, creating the Dust Bowl. And on this day in history, 1939, the John Steinbeck novel, The Grapes of Wrath, is published just a few years after the sandstorm hits and the Dust Bowl is formed. 1981, the first space shuttle, Columbia One, returns to Earth. 2002, at the 66th Masters Tournament, Tiger Woods becomes the third player to claim back-to-back Masters. And finally, on this day in history, 2013, the Human Genome Project is completed with 99% of the human genome sequenced to an accuracy of 99.99%. President Trump, with the support of Congress, is poised to preside over an unprecedented explosion of government spending that already is set to shatter deficit records and could grow further if plans for more coronavirus relief bills nearing a potential total price of $5 trillion become reality. Still, the Trump administration is putting billions of dollars towards startups and entrepreneurs fighting the novel Uh, The novel coronavirus, the White House announced on Tuesday, and a coronavirus strain isolated in India carried a mutation that could render current international vaccine efforts useless, according to researchers in Australia and Taiwan. New York and California lawmakers, they're looking to ban all wet markets in in their respective states. Wet markets in Wuhan, China, have been linked to the origin of the coronavirus. And thousands of nonviolent inmates have been released from jails in Los Angeles County to prevent the spread of coronavirus. But the county sheriff said Monday he's now concerned about a potential future spike in crime. Oh, you think? Amazon has fired two more employees who criticized the alleged lax working conditions at its various warehouses and fulfillment centers around the country in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And the novel coronavirus has killed at least 30 people in the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, the nation's largest food and retail union, the organization announced. As a result, the UFCW has launched a new campaign urging Americans to shop smarter to better protect those essential workers. And several other developments, New York um, Governor Andrew Cuomo and President Trump clashed in heated terms on Tuesday over who is ultimately responsible for reopening the economy, the states or the federal government. The FDA has approved the first saliva-based coronavirus test that will be faster, safer for healthcare workers and more reliable. And a newly published study in the New England Journal of Medicine shows that women who have given birth in New York City recently contracted COVID-19 but were not showing symptoms. Not sure of the correlation there. The Treasury Department announced on Monday that they expect most Americans, that means you, who are eligible for stimulus checks under the CARES Act to receive payments by the end of April. Several categories of people, however, will not be getting payments under the coronavirus relief package. And as New York City scrambles to contain the coronavirus outbreak, remarkable photos captured Monday um, by the photo editor at Fox News show a rainbow stretching across Manhattan. Rather stunning image. I know all of us who are confined uh, to our homes and socially distanced, we're looking for content that we can inform ourselves uh, and edify ourselves by watching. And I want to let you know that Salem Media Group is jumping into the movie business. They're streaming No Safe Spaces. It's a documentary about free speech from comedian Adam, uh, Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. No Safe Spaces was one of 2019's top-earning political documentaries. And the film, it exposes the toll that political correctness is taking on college campuses. Now, despite the film's popularity, the filmmakers weren't able to strike a deal with traditional streamers because of the political bias in Hollywood. So they took it to Salem Radio, marking the first time uh, Salem is going to show a feature film online. Well, the message of the film is how free speech and well, intolerance is being uh, blocked. Um, I should say tolerance is being blocked by uh, intolerant forces who say they believe in free speech, except when it comes to someone they disagree with. Now, let me encourage you to check it out. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for nineteen ninety five. But for KPDQ listeners, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. Now, that's nosafespaces.com. I recommend it. Why not watch it? Tonight, Well, coronavirus, the stay-at-home order, is stirring protests nationwide because of fear of an economic collapse. At least 15,000 cars and trucks are expected to descend on Michigan State Capitol on Wednesday to protest what they're calling Governor Gretchen Whitmer's tyrannical new guidelines to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus in that state. Well, the so-called drive-by demonstration in order to maintain social distancing aims to bring traffic to a gridlock in Lansing, what traffic there is, and to protest the stay home, stay safe executive order from Whitmer, a Democrat mandating what businesses could stay home, what some businesses could sell, and ordering people in her state against any gatherings, no matter the size or family ties. Quarantine is when you restrict movement of sick people. Tyranny is when you restrict the movement of healthy people. That's what the organizer of the protest with the Michigan Conservative Coalition uh, says. Every person has learned a harsh lesson about social distancing. We don't need a nanny state to tell people how to be careful. Well, the protest called Operation Gridlock would be just one of a number of demonstrations of civil disobedience around the country by Americans upset with their state stay-at-home orders with the pandemic. And while the contagion has infected some 568,000 Americans and killed 23,000, according to the latest estimates, 
Protesters in North Carolina to Wyoming said that they'd been um, concerned with the economic and financial impact the coronavirus has inflicted on the country, echoing the president's complaint that the cure might be worse than the problem. Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter who's been sounding the alarm about what he believes are flawed models dictating the aggressive strategy, drew attention to the protests in North Carolina as well as social media uproar in Michigan. As someone wrote me, people in Michigan know when you lose your job, they don't come back. So that protest taking place today and elsewhere around the country. Well, with millions of people adjusting to work from home orders and practicing social distancing, I was concerned about having our lawn uh, mode earlier today while trying to do the show. Scientists are examining what simple changes could be made to home and office environments to, uh, in order to reduce the spread of coronavirus. Well, researchers from UC Davis and the University of Oregon, my alma mater, published their report in the journal M-Systems and came up with some recommendations for healthier workspaces in the age of COVID-19 and other future potential pandemics. Two of their suggestions, opening windows for better air circulation and opening blinds or drapes for more natural sunlight. And although more research is needed to better understand the impact of natural light on the virus indoors, daylight exists as a free, widely available resource to building occupants with little downside to its use and, and uh, many documented positive human health benefits, the researchers wrote in their paper. The paper also urges building operators and office administrators to post signs reminding employees to wash their hands with soap and hot water for at least 20 seconds to provide access to alcohol-based hand sanitizers and to implement new stringent clean protocols, cleaning protocols, especially for areas that are high risk, such as near sinks and toilets. Well, the U.S. Uh, State Department has leaked cables that renew theories on the origin of the novel coronavirus. A Chinese laboratory at the center of new theories about how the coronavirus pandemic started was the subject of multiple urgent warnings inside the U.S. State Department two years ago. U.S. Embassy officials warned in January of 2018 about inadequate safety at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and passed on information about scientists conducting risky research on coronavirus from bats. Well, those cables have renewed speculation inside the U.S. government about whether Wuhan-based labs were the source of the novel coronavirus we're now facing, although no firm connection has been established. The theory, however, has gained traction in recent days. The U.K. has said that the idea that the virus, which has turned into a full-blown global pandemic, was leaked from the Wuhan labs, it's no longer being discounted. A member of the U.K. government's emergency committee, social officials, claimed Sunday there is a credible alternative view to the um, zoonotic theory based on the nature of the virus. Perhaps it is no coincidence that there is a laboratory in Wuhan. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here. When we return, we're going to talk with Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about believers who met in their vehicles, socially distanced, but were cited for that and uh, some of the rules that have singled out religious gatherings. Believers do still have the right to congregate despite COVID-19 uh, if they do so according to guidelines that apply to everyone. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, we just celebrated Easter this past weekend, and I know it was challenging for many of us because we, well, we sheltered in place. We watched uh, Easter services from our living rooms on television screens and phones and computer screens. But there were some who decided we want to be together in a way that 
comports with these new guidelines. Well, in Kentucky, well, they had some trouble. And we're going to talk about that with my next guest, Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And he makes the point in a recent uh, Daily Signal article that believers have the right to congregate despite COVID-19 if they do so according to the guidelines that have been established for everyone. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the show, Georgine. And I think you you hit the nail right on the head uh, with what you said in your your introduction. Um, People of faith have the right to gather as long as they do so in accordance with the the same guidelines that are applicable to everyone else. Uh, The issue that took place in Kentucky this past weekend, as folks were looking to attend a drive-in service in the Louisville area, was that Louisville officials had singled out drive-in church services and were treating those church services differently uh, than they were other businesses and other folks in the community. And that's where they ran into to legal trouble, uh, trying to police those drive-in services. My understanding is those who attended the services adhered to all the safety measures the government had recommended. Uh, they were distanced from one another. They remained in their vehicles. They were spaced at least six feet apart. There was no connection with anyone who attended the service. What was the objection for uh, f- from Kentucky officials that uh, caused them to single out these congregants? Sure. And look, nobody's doubting the, the sincerity and the well-meaning, uh, the well-meant intentions of the Kentucky officials trying to prevent the spread of the coronavirus and COVID-19. But they were concerned that, that these social distancing guidelines would not be adhered to. And there is some factual dispute over exactly the the parameters that were in place for these services. But assuming all of the social distancing guidelines were adhered to by these parishioners and others who want to attend these driving services, uh, what's clear is that government officials cannot single out people of faith and religious services and treat them differently uh, than they would uh, anyone else in the community. And if they do so, Uh, They have to meet a very stringent constitutional test, something called strict scrutiny, uh, which is is one of the strictest review levels that courts apply uh, to review governmental actions. And it's very unlikely uh, that Kentucky officials would be able to survive this strict review by courts. So did the courts weigh in on this particular uh, objection from the Kentucky officials or is this at this point? uh, Go ahead. So I appreciate the question, Georgie. Mm-hmm. They did weigh in. Uh, the church in Kentucky filed for something called a temporary restraining order, uh, basically saying that unless the court weighed in, they wouldn't be able to ha- hold their Easter services and they'd be irreparably harmed. The court weighed in, took a look at the issues, and said that based on the court's understanding of the facts at the time the motion was filed, uh, that it was likely that the Kentucky officials' actions would violate Uh, the free exercise rights of those parishioners in Kentucky and temporarily enjoined the Kentucky officials from taking uh, any action. And after the court entered that order, the case will be litigated and kind of work its way through the court system. Uh, But the point the court made, uh, again, is that officials cannot treat people of faith or religious institutions differently uh, than they would anyone else in the community uh, when enforcing these regulations. And unfortunately, this problem hasn't been limited to Kentucky. Mm -hmm. It's also been in the news recently. Uh, There were several uh, churches in Mississippi that sought to have similar uh, drive-in type services. 
And officials in Mississippi actually issued $500 citations to parishioners who attended those church services. Um, and that's currently being litigated in, uh, down in Mississippi. And recently, in fact, uh, earlier today, the Department of Justice weighed in, uh, filing a statement of interest in those cases saying that, again, if government officials are going to regulate um, public gatherings, they have to do so even-handedly, and they can't single out uh, religious services or people of faith uh, in administering those regulations. Now, the judge who uh, ruled on Saturday, the day before Easter, U.S. District Court Judge Justin Walker, he uh, issued an emergency temporary restraining order that you just referenced, preventing the mayor in the city from enforcing those orders. Uh, can you cite some of what he had to say? Because I think there's some uh, really interesting points that he makes uh, in making the point that our civil liberties have not been demolished as a consequence of this virus. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and again, when courts are reviewing these actions, they're applying strict scrutiny. They're looking to see that the government has a compelling interest in restricting uh, citizens' rights and that if they do have to restrict those rights because of an emergency like the coronavirus, uh, they're doing so in the least restrictive means possible. And what Judge Walker said is that the Kentucky uh, officials' proposed enforcement of preventing drive-in services, it was overbroad and under-inclusive because other activities where folks can drive up or even go into establishments are still being permitted under these social distancing orders. For instance, in Kentucky, liquor stores are still open. And so one of the things that Judge Walker said in his uh, temporary restraining order they issued is that if Kentucky fit officials have deemed beer to be essential, uh, then Easter services are essential as well. And so again, um, it's not that officials can't place any regulations on citizens and people during times of crisis. It's that they have to do so even-handedly, uh, and they can't treat uh, people of faith or religious services differently uh, than they would anyone else in the community. So for the most part, at least in the case of Kentucky, the goal was to try to observe the uh, standards that had been set, the prohibition against you know, gathering in this, a single facility by staying in their cars, having their windows only lowered at half mass, for example. So the goal wasn't to, uh, generally speaking, wasn't to defy the government, but to try to gather in a way that was consistent with what um, local officials had said was acceptable. Is that a fair right. assessment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely it is. And again, as long as people of faith are attending services and adhering to the generally applicable social distancing guidance in their cities or states, uh, those services should be fine and protected uh, by the Constitution. It's, it's a different scenario if people of faith are not adhering to the, the generally applicable rules that everyone has to follow. That's a different situation and, and is more likely to be found impermissible. Uh, but when, when church services are being held in accordance with the social distancing guidance, uh, it's tough to see where they would, would run into problems following those standard guidelines. Again, in your column in the Daily Signal, you write, as government officials and citizens continue to confront new situations caused by the current crisis, they must do so responsibly and reflectively, continuing to be a bulwark against encroachments, however well-meaning or unintentional, 
against our constitutional liberties. And that's that delicate balance that's the challenge at this point, that when we emerge from this, have we lost more than just those who are affected by COVID-19? Have we lost some of our essential liberties in the process? So being guardians is an important uh, element uh, as we try to protect one another by virtue of what we do or don't do uh, in this pandemic. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And unfortunately, in Mississippi, one of the officers uh, chose his words poorly while issuing the citations. And he told the parishioners that their rights had been suspended because of this crisis. Mm. And what I what I really want to emphasize is that our rights have not been suspended just because there's a crisis. Government can take certain appropriate actions to protect everyone as citizens. But again, they have to do so even handedly and can't single out, especially can't single out religious institutions when administering those guidelines. So we still retain our rights, even during a time of crisis. And that's arguably when our rights are, are at their most important. Uh, and that's important that we, we ensure that we take appropriate actions to protect and preserve them. Absolutely. Well, Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Zach is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Dr. Greg Jans, says sometimes the solutions we want are not found in the answers we adopt. He says something is amiss in the United States and we keep looking for cures in the wrong places. The numbers keep growing and overprescribing drugs is not solving the problem. Well, Dr. Jans is a specialist in depression and addictive disorders. He says we tend to deal with symptoms rather than get beneath the surface to see what's happening in the heart and the soul. He explains that depression can often have various causes, unforgiveness, addictions, toxic emotions, and even stress. In his latest book, The In Healing Depression for Life, Dr. Jans, he identifies three deadly emotions. One reason we see an uptick in mass shootings, for example, the misuse of technology and so many other things. Well, the book is titled Healing Depression for Life. Dr. Gregory Jans is our guest to talk about just that. He is a certified eating disorder specialist, a certified chemical dependency counselor, a nationally certified psychologist, and a licensed mental health counselor. The author of 39 books, Dr. Jans is the founder of the Center, a place of hope listed as one of the top 10 facilities for treatment of depression in the United States. He brings a message of hope and healing to audiences uh, through seminars, conferences, and media all across the country and is a much sought after speaker and uh, uh, consultant. We are so grateful to have you with us today, Dr. Jans, to talk about your latest book, Healing Depression for Life. Now, the title may seem to some of our listeners too good to be true, but first of all, welcome. It's good to be with you, and this is a such an important topic. We all know somebody probably who's struggling with depression. Can we begin by just defining what depression is? If I'm uh, feeling tired and stressed out, is that depression? Are you talking about clinical depression, or uh, is there a, a definition that includes all of that? Sure. You know, and depression comes in many different flavors, if you will. We mm-hmm. hear different terms to describe it. Uh, what I'm talking about today, though, uh, it, it's that depression. Uh, it's been over a month and things aren't getting better. And you've told yourself, uh, you know, you've tried to shake it off. And and some reason you wake up and that dark cloud is still there. 
and you're trying to figure out, oh, no, what do I do? And everything you've tried it hasn't worked so far. So that's what we're talking about. It's a depression that just lingers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, depression, you start out by uh, saying that you've been there. You share a bit of your own journey. Would you share that with our listeners now? Yes. And, you know, I've been treating depression for 36 years here at A Place of Hope, and I want to let you know I have walked through it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, I just was dealing with chronic high stress and not now chronic high stress can move you over to depression and anxiety. And so I probably had the helper's disease. I, I had great intentions, as most people do, and you just keep saying yes, but you forget about your own self-care. And eventually your body physically is sending out signals and emotionally you're not being renewed and spiritually you're not being renewed. And you find yourself at a place going, what in the world has happened to me? So I, I've walked through, and I made it sound real simple, but it took me a, a year or so to really come out of all that. Now, you believe that um, there is an uptick in the diagnosed incidence of depression, um, that they're higher than ever. Why do you think that's the case? Well, as we look at depression, and even, I'm glad you asked, the World Health Organization, they tell us that depression is the number one, they call it a disability, the number one disability in the world. My goodness, that's incredible. How do you do that uh, in the world and have depression above heart disease and cancer? Well, one of the things that we know is true is that um, depression is on the increase with uh, 12 to 17-year-olds, uh, 50 and above, we have high numbers. And so it's affecting the world, not just the United States. Hmm. Now, what are some of the reasons you cite that leave you to believe that uh, we're losing the battle with depression? I, I think for many of us, we're loath to put a label on it. We don't know to seek help for it because we're not really sure whether or not we qualify as being legitimately depressed. But why do you think um, we're losing the battle with this subject? I think because we're just looking for a singular approach to it. Um, and what by that, I mean, you, you feel like, man, something's wrong, and you do the right thing. You go in and see the doctor, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, you, you get a prescription, you fulfill it, but that's all you do, only, only a medication approach. And then months pass, and you go, wow, you know what, I, I'm just not doing that great. And that's because we just used a singular approach and not a wrong approach, but we want to add to it. Uh, We want to look at the whole person. We want to look at what are all the possible reasons. We're we're all a thousand piece puzzle and there's a lot of different pieces. There are unique pieces to our puzzle and we need to look at what are those pieces that are missing. And uh, that's why we do things as a team. That's why uh, I believe you have to look at the whole person. Now, one of the the, um, the things you mentioned earlier was the fact that people are given a a drug to help deal with the issue, but very little else. What are some of the common treatments for depression that are not working, perhaps um, in in a singular case of a drug without anything else? What are some of the uh, common treatments? Uh, in the well, one of the things that we look at, we look at, are there nutrient deficiencies? What are what's causing the imbalance in the body chemistry? Is there um, trauma in the person's life? Early trauma, abuse, physical trauma. 
Uh, we also look at is there medical conditions that could be leading to a possibility of depression. For example, one real common one is the person who's had chemotherapy and uh, they suffer from a, a physiological depression and it, it seems to take them a long time uh, just to move out of that. So there's medical reasons for depression. Mm. In what specific ways does overuse of technology erode mental health, if in fact oh, it does? yes. Technology. Do we get to talk about technology today? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what we know. If you're already depressed and, and today you just spent most of your day or tonight online, on Facebook, wherever, in social media, you're going to end up feeling worse. Uh, social media, when you already are on the borderline of depression, social media will cause you to feel uh, more depression symptoms, more anxiety symptoms. And why is that the case? Because we tend to compare ourselves with others. Um, what, what is it about that setting in social media that contributes to depression? Well, one of the things that happens is uh, we're looking for a relationship, we're looking for a connection, and it doesn't happen in social media. Social media, we tend to compare ourselves. Uh, we tend to feel inferior after spending time online. <laughs> it's a kind of a natural condition. Mm -hmm. you, feel, you feel worse, not better. Mm. You write uh, about the, uh, the heart of any addiction is impulse control. What's the link between impulse control and depression? Oh, boy. We live in an instant society. We want everything right now. And our kids are used to living that way. We kind of live in an age of entitlement as well. And everything's one click away. And I can, I can go over to Dr. Google and get all my answers <laughs> very quickly, right? And so we're used to instant. Well, if I can't cure my depression fairly quickly or instantly, um, I grow more frustrated. When I say low impulse control, that means um, I, I can sometimes appear random and sporadic. And so that's important to look at impulse control. Can I control my impulses? If I feel depressed, am I secretly drinking or overusing medication or engaging in addictive behavior? What's going on if I'm struggling with depression that I could be attempting to self-medicate? I think we should probably take the break before I start something that we will run out of time on. But when we come back, I'd like to talk uh, to you about the, what you describe as continuous partial attention, which I think is something that we also uh, experience in our culture today, given yeah. social media and this need for immediate answers to what may, in fact, be long term uh, problems. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans. Um, his latest book is Healing Depression for Life, in which he take uh, for life rather, in which he takes a holistic approach. Uh, that I think you'll find very encouraging if this is a subject of, uh, about which you are struggling. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Jantz. His latest book is uh, simply titled Healing Depression for Life, the personalized approach uh, that offers new hope for lasting relief. And isn't that what uh, those suffering from depression are looking and hoping for? Now, just before the break, I mentioned continuous partial attention. Um, while I'm sitting here engaged in this conversation, I have the TV on in front just in case there's some breaking news 
news story. The Internet is open on my right, and I'm engaging in conversation with you. Explain for us what you mean by continuous partial attention. (laughs) Well, if you've ever had lunch with somebody and they're on their device and they're texting somebody and they look up at you and they go, what did you just say? (laughs) You know, they had partial attention. And what happens is in our relationships, it devalues the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily intentional, but you end up feeling not as valued because something else has taken the person's attention. Yeah, whatever's happening on that screen is more uh, important than the person sitting directly across the table from you in that close proximity. And that happens quite often. People are, um, their their attention is... is um, not focused. That's right. And That's how does right. that how does that uh, reflect or contribute to depression? Well, one of the things is we're distracted. We can't be fully present. Uh, likewise, when we're depressed, we're already struggling with concentration. It's you know, in this new book I've I've done, Healing Depression for Life. As great as book as it is. If you're depressed, you've got to move really slow. You're going to lose concentration, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's hard to focus. Yeah. And so we want to be aware of that. Uh, the focusing, the uh, ability when I'm depressed to really see things through might be difficult. So that's something to look at. Yeah, yeah. Now, what, what about long-term stress and depression? Are they linked? Does one contribute to the other? Does one exacerbate the other? Yes, if you're living under some chronic stress, be it work stress, financial stress, uh, by chronic, I mean it's been six months and this stress is not going away. Maybe it's relationship stress. Maybe it's abusive relationship. Maybe it's um, a sense of feeling controlled or oppressed. Um, Whatever it is that is adding up to equal chronic stress, over time, think about that just wearing on the body physically, you're going to look for a way to cope with it. Maybe it's uh, uh, drinking. Maybe it's escapism behaviors of some kind that aren't healthy. And so that chronic stress causes you to, to want to self-medicate. And when I self-medicate, what happens is I tend to do things that are not healthy mm-hmm. and that I usually I regret. Yeah. So chronic stress will lead you quite potentially down a road of of some depression, despondency, some despair. And self-medicating doesn't necessarily mean you are ingesting drugs. It can be um, entertaining yourself to death or distracting yourself in ways that are unhealthy. Well, I just thought of it. It could be food. Mm-hmm. It could be I'm, I'm secretly eating uh, to escape. So there are a variety of ways to do that. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's unusual in your approach, or I should say unique, is that you really focus on the body, the mind, and the soul. And uh, you make the point that although people of faith have lower rates of depression, um, that uh, we have less anxiety and stress, it still can be an issue and sometimes is interpreted as uh, perhaps a weaker faith or um, that uh, maybe your, your faith walk is not sufficient if you struggle in this area. Yes, and, and, you know, we need to look at faith and what we believe. If, if you're depressed, you probably don't feel lovable. You feel like, well, how could God love me? And uh, un- understandable, because when we're depressed, we just don't feel we have much value. Now, one of the things we need to look at is uh, we may be pr- 
praying and crying out to God, God, take this away from me. Uh, get this off of me. You know, we're desperate. And I hear that. And it's good. It's okay to pray desperate prayers. Uh, we may want to also pray, Lord, give me the wisdom uh, to know what I need to do. Show me the missing pieces to my puzzle. Um, but pray for wisdom. Sometimes, and for me, I made some life corrections when I went through my time of despair and depression. I made some permanent life corrections, and it changed me, and it changed the course of my relationships. So um, depression, as terrible as it is, can be an opportunity to make some changes that's going to add future joy, freedom, uh, life purpose. So there's an opportunity here. But you raised the topic of three deadly emotions, unresolved anger, guilt, and fear. Um, How do these, as you refer to them, terrible triplets impact depression? (laughs) Yeah. Anger, fear, and guilt. I call them the three deadly emotions. Well, another word for anger could be hurt. I've been hurt. Uh, Hurt's always unresolved hurt. Go somewhere. Maybe I take that unresolved uh, hurt and it turns into depression. Maybe it turns into bitterness and resentment. So when you think of anger, think I've been hurt. It could be I've been betrayed. I feel that I've been injured. Uh, Fear, anxiety, and worry is a form of fear. If I have way too much fear in my life, I get paralyzed. Um, I can't make decisions. And I'm really paralyzed. And and, uh, fear is the great paralyzer. Uh, Guilt. Well, you know, there's a true guilt or a guilt that says, oh, I made a mistake. I need to ask for forgiveness. Um, And then there's a false guilt, um, which could be really shame. I feel shameful. I feel like something is terribly wrong with me. Maybe I feel defective. Hmm. That can so often um, so often happen. In what ways does forgiveness play a role in the in healing from depression? Well, forgiveness we, we, if there's one single um, area that is common to so many suffering from uh, depression, it's that of this topic of forgiveness, which is probably misunderstood. It could be a, a self-forgiveness, could be I've been traumatized, could be a forgiveness of others. One of the things that we want to become in our healing from depression, one of the things that we want to become is an initiator of forgiveness. We don't want to carry any old baggage. We want to be initiate. We want to learn how do I forgive and move on. And I don't mean it sound quick and easy or simple. It's not always that way. But how do I live a life of forgiveness where I'm not uh, punishing myself or punishing others? A lack of forgiveness certainly can create some depression. One of the things you encourage your readers to do is consider exercise, simply moving and the role that that plays in helping to um, alleviate or even prevent depression. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about that? I mean, do I need to run a marathon to feel better? Well, probably not a marathon, (laughs) but movement can be really important. I have to keep moving. Now, when you're depressed, in fact, when people come here to a place of hope, um, they don't want to move. Uh, you're depressed, you don't feel like you have the energy to do anything. And maybe walking around the block is really hard. It takes all you have, and maybe you don't feel like you can even do that. So walking, 
movement is an important piece. We, we know that if I can keep you moving and your body stretching, everything else that we're going to do with you is going to work more effectively. Are there foods that uh, either contribute to or help mitigate depression? Well, there's foods that I think can make it worse. Uh, a lot of times a person on a depressed, they have a pretty high sugar or diet or fast food or a lot of soda uh, drinks. Diet does make a difference. I think of an individual who came to us and he was, uh, he'd never been asked what was he put in his mouth. He had been depressed over 20 years, tried every medication that he was given. So he was drinking, I know it sounds amazing, 10 to 12 pots of coffee a day. Oh, my goodness. And he was still standing he, upright, huh? <laughs> well, he he just, over over time, that's all he did was drink coffee. Oh. Now, would that, that's an amazing amount of caffeine. Would that create some problems? Would that physically create problems? Yes. Uh, and so what we put in our mouth, and I'm not saying everybody's depressed does drinks a lot of coffee, but I'm just saying what you put in your mouth does matter. If we're depressed, uh, we tend not to make the best food choices. Even drinking water can be hard for a depressed person. So you have to make yourself perhaps venture into areas that are less comfortable <laughs> in order to feel better. That's right, you do. Um, I wonder, do you have a few more minutes? I need to take a break. I'd love to cover a couple of other issues if you have the time. Let's do it. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Jans. The book is titled Healing Depression for Life, and what an excellent resource in thinking through some of these issues and how they might contribute. Now, of course, our conversation, as short as it is, doesn't reflect all of the great information you'll find in the book, but I would highly recommend you go deeper if you are struggling with depression and would like to heal that for life. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And my guest, Dr. Gregory Jans, has graciously consented to uh, stay with us for a few more minutes. We're talking about his book, Healing Depression for Life, the personalized approach that offers new hope for lasting relief. It's very practical, easy to apply, and helps us think through what things are contributing uh, to depression. Now, your book raises other issues that uh, contribute to depression. What are some of these, and how can we know for certain what's causing our depression? And, and isn't it important to know what the, the the mitigating circumstances leading to our depression might be? You know, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. Uh, usually there's, you know, one major, two, two or three reasons for depression, early trauma. I haven't really talked about that, but uh, complicated grief and loss in somebody's life can be another factor. And it is, it's important to know, um, well, you know, if I have unresolved trauma, I could take a pill, I might feel a little better, but for the long term, it's not going to get me the results that I really want to have. So we need to dig in and really understand uh, what uh, maybe some core issues could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about seasonal affective disorder? We live here in the Pacific Northwest. Right now I look out, there's clouds everywhere. It's been raining the last couple of days. Explain <laughs> yeah. what that is and how it impacts uh, a person's uh, tendency toward depression? Well, you know, there's there's a seasonal affective disorder. We've heard that mentioned before. 
And there are people that are certainly more sensitive. Uh, you know, the lack of sunlight, the lower vitamin D levels, um, all that is, is true and legitimate. <laughs> you know, people eat more maybe in the winter. So this is why I need to put together a comprehensive plan uh, to help me. You know, I, I kind of joke, of course, uh, I'm in Seattle, our facilities in Seattle. And if you can walk through everything here, you're going to do really good. Yeah. <laughs> does the adding a light source, does that actually help? There is um, so what we call the full spectrum lighting that uh, for some, they can be fairly sensitive to it and see some results. So lighting and light uh, does make a difference. And even in our, our, our body's rhythms, our sleep, our circadian rhythms, so that can have an effect. Mm-hmm. Now, you provide at the back of the book uh, to help people determine if they are depressed and how severe a questionnaire. Um, What are some of the key indicators and how does that help us pinpoint what the source of my particular problem might be? Well, there's a good questionnaire, but one of the things that we need to know is, okay, whatever symptoms that you're having, have they, uh, you know, been going on? Is it over a month to two months? Are you getting more symptoms uh, versus less? And are those symptoms intensifying? In other words, I mentioned sleep. Is sleep becoming more difficult? Are you waking up in the morning and that sleep, you don't feel restful or you're waking, feel like you're waking up throughout the night and maybe your heart feels like it's pounding and you have some anxiety. So we know really the intensity and how many different symptoms uh, maybe you feel uh, it's important. Maybe you feel like you've isolated from everybody. You don't have the energy to do anything, and those things are getting worse. At the end of your uh, book, you have a you cover the mind, the soul, the body. You have a chapter titled "Reinventing Your Future." For someone yes. who is in the midst of depression, what does that look like? Reinventing your future and having hope that the future is not going to be what it uh, what it seems to be now in the midst of depression. Yes, reinventing your future may look like um, having new life goals. Uh, As I walk through depression, what am I going to do differently? Uh, Am I going to do some things that prevent me from continuing to recycle in depression? Um, What's going to give me really true meaning in life? Uh, In a greater sense, you know, what's um, what I what do I feel like is God's plans for me? When I'm depressed, I can't. I, I can't see it or can't feel it. I don't know. But I, I do know that um, life is precious and there's a good plan. Our theme verse is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and you do have a future and a hope. Mm. And it, when you're in the midst of depression, you so desperately need to be reminded um, of that. Uh, this book is uh, a resource that's available among other resources that you are um, that you have put together. What is your hope uh, with readers? I know that you see patients on a regular basis in the Seattle area, but what is your hope with um, your readers in addressing some of these uh, issues that can be so debilitating? Um, the subtitle of your book focuses on hope for lasting relief, but the resources that you have provided, how do you see those contributing to the health and the recovery of, of your readers? You know, we work with individuals from all over the country and even internationally. And because of our approach, this whole person approach and doing things as a team, you know, we were voted in one of the top 10 places to get help for depression. Mm -hmm. I know how important it is to do it right. 
And so my hopes, and I know that, um, you know, honestly, as good as the book is, and it's good, but we may need more help. Yeah. Um, um, we, and, and today I want people, it's okay to ask for help. Gather more information. Yes, certainly do your best to gather, get new ideas and do some reading. But, you know, we, we will regret it if we don't ask for help um, over, over time. So make today a decision point. It's, and I just want to say uh, it's okay to ask for help and begin to gather that new information today. Yeah, yeah. At what point do you recognize I need help beyond what um, what I might be able to do for myself? I've thought through some of the issues that your book presents. Um, is there a, a turning point? Is there a switch at which you recognize I need additional help? Yes. If, the, if it's not going away and you're six months into this or three months into this, uh, I, I would say, look, if you're still experiencing it, let's get some quality help. Uh, that can help us begin to find out what are those missing pieces to the puzzle. By the way, when we're depressed, sometimes our our ability to see things is, is lessened, and we may need some help. We may need some accountability. We may need somebody to help us uh, have a plan to create an action plan. And that's a, a great, uh, great place to start. Well, Dr. Jans, I thank you so much for uh, your book, all your books, really. And for this one in particular, Healing Depression for Life, the personalized approach that offers new hope for lasting relief. And I think for folks in the midst of depression, that's the thing they need most is hope and a practical way to address the, the struggle and the challenge that they're facing. Thank you so much. Oh, good to be with you today. Thank you. Look forward to the next time. You got it. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Dr. Gregory Jantz, he's our neighbor to the uh, to the north. He is the founder of um, The Center, A Place of Hope, which was voted one of the top facilities in the United States for the treatment of depression. He's a best-selling author, 37 books, actually more than. He's a go-to media source and um, continues to identify more effective, cutting-edge forms of treatment for people struggling with depression. Healing Depression for Life, the personalized approach that offers new hope for lasting relief. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show final segment. A couple things I want to mention. Um, the Supreme Court is going to allow live audio broadcasts for the first time responding to the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, on Monday, they said that they're going to hear oral arguments next month over the telephone and allow a live audio broadcast of the proceedings, both for the first time. The announcement clears the way for the justices to decide by the summer whether the president has an absolute immunity from being forced to disclose his taxes to a House committee or a New York grand jury. So interesting. And also, finally, former President Barack Obama on Tuesday endorsed Joe Biden, his vice president and running mate through two terms in presidential campaigns and the looming uh, race against President Trump stepping off the sidelines after withholding support for a candidate for months for, for any candidate. Uh, the president, the former president, made the announcement in a statement and video posted on social media saying choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made. And he uh, became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. He pointed to the severe challenges the nation faces as it copes with the coronavirus pandemic. The former president emphasized that Joe has the character and the experience to guide us through one of our darkest times and heal us through our long recovery. Well, I know we're all feeling a bit stir crazy, perhaps, and uh, 
putting things into perspective might help us to be grateful for the fact that most of us, perhaps not all, but most of us have comfortable homes to shelter in place. We have access to one another by virtue of phones and social media and technology. But in other places where they're facing COVID-19, things are a bit more dire. Women and children fell to the ground, bloodied and trampled in a desperate surge for food being handed out in Nairobi in a slum as police fired tear gas and men with sticks beat the hungry. As African countries grapple with the coronavirus pandemic, observers warned that the traumatic scenes which played out last Friday will not be the last if government fails to help millions of urban poor who live hand to mouth. I give them, the government, one to two weeks before things get worse, not in terms of coronavirus, but in terms of hunger. That's a um, quote from Kennedy Odebe, who runs Shiny Hope for Communities, a grassroots movement which works in the Nairobi slum, Kabira, and other informal uh, settlements in Kenya. If, uh, if it continues like this, we might be playing with fire. Kenya has so far condoned, uh, cordoned off the capital and parts of its coastline and imposed a nighttime curfew and other social distancing measures. Many of these restrictions are having a wrenching impact, causing loss of jobs among the poor. And while president, uh, the president has wielded the threat of a full lockdown to get citizens to comply with the rules, officials admit it is uh, an agonizing choice, especially as 60% of Nairobi's residents live in slums. Locking up people in the slums will be the last option. A lot needs to be done before that, a high-ranking security official said on condition of anonymity. It's unenforceable and unsustainable. The coronavirus arrived late in Africa, but slowly taking hold with over 15,000 cases, 800 deaths across the continent. And while much of the developed world waited weeks to begin taking action, Countries in Africa rapidly shut borders, banned mass gatherings in uh, Rwanda, Tunisia, and other countries. They were the first to impose full lockdowns, um, with another going so far as to shut supermarkets and bakeries for 10 days. South Africa is the biggest economy on the continent to completely confine its citizens, while Nigeria imposed lockdowns on Lagos, the continent's largest city, and its capital, Abuja, uh, which on Monday was extended for another two weeks. Both have millions of people packed tightly in urban slums. Just giving you a perspective on what other parts of the world are facing in an effort to address this coronavirus. And then the Family Research Council uh, pointed this out. Uh, cities across Nigeria are now in lockdown as Africa's largest country tries to slow the spread of coronavirus. The pandemic poses a new and terrifying threat to the world, and it has become an added anxiety to Nigerian Christians who are already too familiar with the fear that accompanies long-term threats. For years, Boko Haram and Fulani militants have targeted Christians for kidnapping, extreme violence, and massacres. In March and April, further reports of attacks by Fulani militants reached us involving Assaults on villages in four Nigerian states, with some 23 churches burned and nearly 30 Christians killed. Uh, Leah Sharubi, Sharibu rather, is one of 110 young schoolgirls who were kidnapped back in 2018, you might recall, by Boko Haram, a faction in northeastern Nigeria, during an attack on an all-girls science and technical school. She was just 14 years old at the time, and unlike the rest of the girls who were released by the terrorists two months later, Leah remains in captivity over two years after her abduction. The reason? She was bravely refused Boko Haram's demand to convert to Islam and abandon her Christian faith, even to pretend to do so. Because Leah held fast to her beliefs, Boko Haram militants enslaved her. Recent reports suggest that Leah has given birth to a baby and is suspected to be a victim of a forced marriage to one of her captors. 
Her story is one representation of the relentless attacks Nigerian Christians face. These ongoing assaults have included widespread murder, atrocities, maiming, gang rape, globally broadcasted beheadings, and the burning alive of countless Christians, victims in their own homes and their churches. So while sheltering in place, social distancing is something of a challenge for us. We have access to so many luxuries and comfort compared to other parts of the world, perhaps as we focus less on ourselves and what we suffer, in quotes, we might to turn our attention elsewhere to those who suffer in ways we can't even imagine. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. On Wednesday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with a pastor of Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. We'll be talking with Rich Jones, the pastor, and uh, we're going to talk about this new normal. How do you navigate that from the standpoint of a pastor, of, as a family man, as just a resident in our community? So I'm looking forward uh, to talking with him. And we'll also talk about uh, Easter. I mean, for most of us, we were sitting in front of our televisions viewing uh, what pastors and worship leaders were presenting. But for Pastor Jones and others, they were the presenters. So we'll get his perspective on uh, how different it was for him as a pastor teacher. So that's coming up on um, on Wednesday. And I'm really looking forward to that. Also want to just give you a look ahead to Friday and let you know that we plan on Uh, taking full advantage of our tradition of Fun Friday, and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. So hope you will join us and hold out for that. There is a lighter news out there, and we're going to share some of that with you on Friday's program, so uh, make note. Once again, on Wednesday, Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel will join us. We're going to talk about how this new normal is impacting him as a husband and father and uh, as a pastor. So that's uh, that's going to be on tomorrow's program. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It is a new normal, but we're grateful that we can at least be together like this. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.